Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Good evening everybody, uh, kia ora and welcome to uh, tonight's Auckland Conversations. Um, on behalf of Auckland Council and our partners and our sponsors, um, I bid you a warm welcome to Auckland, those of you that have arrived and as, as visitors, um, also to colleagues and friends who are here this evening. There's about 550 people here tonight, maybe more. It's uh, absolutely jam-packed. Thank you. Um, just saying to the speakers this evening, there's, you know, you're not forced to come. You know, you're, you're here because you. There's a little bit of wine and a little bit of food, but you know, it's it's really quite humbling. So thank you, um, because without you, it's not possible. So look, welcome um, to everybody. Um, my name is Ludo Campbell-Reed. I'm a um, member of the uh, Be Accessible Fab 50, um, which I'm very proud to be. Um, I'm also the general manager of the Auckland Design Office at Auckland Council and also Auckland Council's uh, design champion. And I'm going to try to MC the evening and uh, be the sort of uh, the panel compare. So um, looking forward to a, a great night. It's been an incredible day today, actually, um, full of amazing talks by inspiring men and women from all around the world. Um, lots of incredible workshops and also some walkabouts across the city with uh, different staff. So. It's been incredible, and uh, tonight is just a sort of the culmination of really what has been a, um, a really awesome day. Uh, we also had our new mayor, um, Phil Goff, here this morning opening the, um, I the plenary session, which was incredible. Phil is so busy. I mean, it's crazy. And um, the fact that he even took out half an hour or two hours of his morning to come along uh, really just showed us that he was really eager and keen to uh, support us. And we've... Um, We've copied all his notes, and um, there's some really, there's some fertile language in there around helping the team drive this through the organisation through the city. Uh, so we'll be uh, utilising and abusing those, those, those quotes. Um, but it's just um, really cool to have him here, and uh, really grateful to that. So, uh, without further ado, um, let's let's get cracking. Um, there's a um, we're going to be running a process whereby we have live. Um, what do we call it? Live live captioning, which is a really cool way to um, capture uh, the words that are spoken. Um, so when we have the questions and answers dealt with later on in the session with the panelists, um, please wait um, until you get a microphone, because without the microphone, the captionist can't uh, take your um, you know, caption your words. And the caption is actually sitting in Australia tonight, so that's, we're working we're working across the the world, and um, that's pretty exciting. Um, we also have a live filming of the event tonight, so there are people watching and listening from all over the planet. And, you know, um, the vision for the, the Auckland Conversations that they would be like the TED Talks of, of, of the Southeast Asia. And um, it's always good to have dreams, and I'm sure we'll get there in the end. So, um, you know, we're the first city in the world that wakes up on a new day, so why the hell can't we have the first idea that comes out of, of these smart people and get that across the world? So... Um, look, that, 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 that's um, the, the key parts to that. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, we also have a social media presence in the room today, wherever Natalie is. Um, there you are. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep linking to you guys. And uh, there's a live feed. Um, the uh, hashtag AKL Conversations. And what the team will do is through the course of the evening, as people um, get on board through Twitter, uh, we'll gather the series of the sort of the better questions or more interesting questions and at the end of the panel session you'll I'll be fed those from the team so uh, we'll get your questions up there so please keep firing those through 
Okay, so um, there's also a magazine on your seat, is that right, that's, that's there, this is this called Our Auckland, and it's really important that the council um, gets the, the communication with its citizens and the people it serves, and that's one of our, our sort of vehicles for doing that, so please have a look at that, take it home with you and, and, and peruse, and give that feedback to us around things that you need to hear more of and, or less of. So, um, the other thing I'd like to talk about is housekeeping and safety, um, health and safety. Um, in the un very unlikely event of fire or emergency, uh, there will be a, a very loud alarm or sound, and we will be directed out of the building by ushers. So the best thing, without knowing where these events can occur, the best thing is just wait for the ushers to tell us what, what we need to do. Uh, so all of our, our teams with um, you know, visual impairments and so forth will We'll work that through with the ushers, um, so things should be fine. If you need the lavatories, they are um, back through the doors you came in, go straight ahead, and the toilets are just across the hallway, um, so everyone can have their comfort stop if they need. So, as I said, this evening couldn't happen without you all here tonight, but it also couldn't happen without our general sponsors and partners. So I'd really like to thank, um, in particular, first and foremost, the architectural designers of New Zealand, um, Astrid and her team for collaborating with us on tonight's um, uh, performance and, and, and uh, talk and also sharing the venue with us because it keeps our costs down um, as well. They are also holding their 50th anniversary annual conference as well at the same time so that's really where the opportunity came and they've got a whole series of their, um, I suppose the best awards for the um, for their, um, their sort of um, groups and for their members, which are all celebrated and highlighted at the back of the room, well, on the, the far side of the room. So please have a look at those when you, um, when you can. Um, Auckland Conversations would also not be possible without the ongoing support of a whole range of private organisations who, who have been with us from, for many years. And I want to thank them. Um, we want to thank our partner sponsors who are Resine, who are fantastic. Um, I'd like to thank our programme supporters who are Brookfield Lawyers, uh, Botham Miskill, uh, the Architectural Designers of New Zealand, New Zealand Institute of Architects, uh, the New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. So would you mind uh, putting your hands together and thanking them? So, um, on to the main course, um, um, Valerie and the team. I had the privilege of listening to Valerie earlier today and um, really inspired by her experience and her knowledge. So looking forward to a another stimulating talk tonight, Valerie. And um, thank you for traveling so far from Boston to, to be here. Um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to have you here. You're a, a special person. So Valerie has been the executive director of the Institute of Human-Centered Design since 1998. Um, she has helped shape the global principles of universal design. With many years of engagement in advancing accessibility and universal design in the public and private sectors, Valerie has a deep knowledge and clear perspective of the challenges and opportunities that exist in moving forward the agenda of universal design for all people. We spoke a lot today about uh, inclusive design and, and that's something that I'm sure Valerie will bring up again. Valerie currently oversees projects ranging from consultation and design services in higher education, culture, outdoor areas, healthcare and government to projects demonstrating cutting edge practice in inclusive design. Valerie has a Master's in Ethics and Public Policy from Harvard University. Um, the Boston Society of Architects awarded her the Woman in Design Award in 2005. She also co-chairs the, the Design Industry Group of Massachusetts and represents North America on the board for the International Association for Universal Design. This is her first trip to New Zealand and um, I, I'm sure it's 
caught you, caught your heart. And um, although she's only been here for two days, um, I'm sure she'll no doubt provide us with some great insights on the ongoing designing of cities with people in mind. Uh, would you put your, warm, your hands together and give a warm welcome to Valerie. Thank you, Lido. Good evening, everyone. This is thrilling. I was saying earlier, the view from those windows looks fake. <laughs> I'm already deciding that Auckland is sort of too good to be true. Um, and I, I, as I, I confessed earlier today, I may only have arrived in Auckland yesterday morning, but I am 16 years late. <laughs> My sister Kate uh, lives in New Zealand, lived in Auckland for many years, married a Kiwi, uh, is now living in Hawke's Bay. Um, but I've been hearing detailed information about Auckland for a long time, and fie on me for being so tardy. So I'm delighted to be here. And I, uh, I am dazzled by the experience of today. It was really a terrific time. I learned a lot. So I'm going to talk to you about inclusive design as consequential innovation. I hate to use the word innovation. We've all heard it way too much. But I'm going to take the risk of trying it out tonight with a little bit of a slant. Um, who the heck are we? We're an international education and design NGO. We're headquartered in Boston, but my staff is sort of scattered all over. Um, dedicated to enhancing the experiences of people of all abilities, ages, and cultures through excellence in, de in design. I have to tell you that part of what excites me so much about what you're doing in Auckland is that you seem genuinely committed to making human diversity a celebration, a cause for a belief in richer experiences because you are convinced it is the only way to go. You may have noticed my country seemed to be struggling with this lately. Um, I used to use the word Trump on a regular basis, and now it is lost to me. Um, and, and I really feel badly about that. But I assure you, we aren't nearly as alarming as we seem, I think. Anyway, I'm, in Bo I'm from Boston, so we, we're different. Um, let me go back here. Um, sort of what do, we, what do we believe in? We believe that design matters. It, it matters tremendously, and too often it matters in a negative way. Too many people at the edges of the spectrum left out of the design experience. So our conviction is that if it works at the edges of the spectrum, it works better across the spectrum. The other thing we believe uh, is that difference in ability is really ordinary. It surely isn't special. Those of us lucky to live into the 21st century are living lives so much longer and surviving so much more. My God, we change out our parts on a regular basis. <laughs> our pa you know, those of us old enough to have parents that have all already passed they couldn't believe that would people be changing out their knees and their hips and their shoulders on a regular basis and barely missing a week at the gym. But that is life today, and we are damned lucky to have it. So special isn't anything that I deal with. I don't like that idea. I do want to introduce you. I'm having trouble with this. We've had trouble with this all day. Um, but I, I am very proud of my town. I am a native of Boston. I haven't lived there all my life but it is the place that calls my heart, and it's the place I'm connected on the planet. I also like to think that we are one of the great livable cities, even if Forbes doesn't include us on the list. Um, and I've got a series of images here of our fabulous city, um, and I do please invite you to uh, come and see how we're doing. 
we always have a long way to go, but we are, for the first time in a long time, really deservedly acknowledged for celebrating our diversity, at least for a moment. But it's also a place that reminds me of how thoroughly we can get off track. So I thought I was born in the Athens of America, and in the 70s I found out that I was actually from the racist capital of America. Um, this is an image of actually a friend of mine, Ted Landsmark. He was a city attorney back then. And this is in front of Boston City Hall, and he is being stabbed with an American flag because he was a black man in a difficult time in the city. There was a great deal of tension around integration. Uh, I'm not proud of this image, but Ted has survived, and he is now part of a five-member governing board of redevelopment for the city of Boston. But this is also a part of my history and part of why I feel so strongly about what you're doing here. And I'm happy to say this is today, so that these are the valedictorians of our uh, 50 high schools in Boston, and there were two white kids this year. It's kind of delicious. Uh, I was bowled over to uh, immerse myself in Auckland, at least reading, over the last couple of months. And I've, I've read a good bit of the Auckland plan. How many of you have read? No, don't, don't raise your hands. It, it, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a slog. It's hefty. Uh, but priority one, read to priority one. And it says, create a strong, inclusive, and equitable society that ensures opportunities for all Aucklanders. How terrific. Uh, I, I applaud that. I've got to tell you, I wish I'd seen this kind of language everywhere I go in the world. I have not. Uh, so I think if you are serious about this, you have a chance to distinguish this place as truly the most livable city in the world. Ooh, I'm having a hard time here. Let's see. Slow down the finger. The 20th century impetus underlies our commitment today to social sustainability. And we all understand environmental sustainability is really the dominant leg of the three-legged stool. And I'm here tonight to talk about social sustainability and to give some substance to the idea of social sustainability. And one of the things that I know every day is our attempt to be sort of a pitchman for the idea of inclusive design is that it is very difficult to get people to feel any sense of urgency when the topic you're talking about is the result of success. And that's where we are in social sustainability. We live on average 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago. Success. We did some things right in the 20th century. We live longer and survive more. When I was a kid, the idea that I would know today many people who were born with conditions like cerebral palsy, who have grandchildren, they didn't even grow up, or we didn't expect that that would happen. We are so extraordinarily fortunate to live in a world in which these things are true. Global aging is the big story. And, and I, I use this image because I want you to understand this isn't a condition of wealth. This is a condition of the world. The arc is the same whether you're in the developing world or the developed world. Of course, most of the world is in the developing world. So those are the turquoise bars uh, leading uh, the, dominant, uh, the dominant color in those bars from 2050 from, sorry, from 1950 to 2050. And those of us in the developed nations are the little tops, the little gold tops of that. The next time someone tells you that China is going to eat our lunch, you remind them that China is one of the oldest countries in the world. 
And China is struggling with how do we actually have more young people in China because multiple generations of one child per, per family has resulted in a nation the largest on earth, but a nation that is rapidly aging. We need to remember that the work we do to figure out how to design for the reality of longer lives and more functional limitation is a challenge that all the world needs to mount. One of the things that those of us that are old uh, like, to, uh, like to make sure that everyone knows, and so many of you are young, though I'm glad to see a handful of you actually understand that you would make the same argument on the issue of the cohort of aging isn't 65 to dead. The cohort of aging is nicely nuanced if you think about it. There are those of us that we think of as the young old, 65 to 74. And then those of us that are a little further along are the old, 75 to 84. And then there's the old, old of 85 plus. And our needs are different. Remember that. We young old actually have very demanding expectations of our lives for the rest of our lives. And we set expectations for places like cities. I want to congratulate New Zealand for the positive aging strategy. That idea that is a keen argument that says, if we don't figure this out, we will all pay. Because if people cannot sustain life independently, if we cannot figure out how people can live full lives all of their lives, we end up with something that the statisticians called the dependency ratio getting out of control. You do not want to see that. Yet those of you who are in your 20s or 30s do not want to look down the road at every generation taking more money out of your pocket to care for all of us who are dependent upon you and on human help. One of the advantages of design, and one of the reasons that it is worth investing attention and money is that design is incredibly cost-effective. You don't invest every single day and pay by the hour for good design. You do it thoughtfully up front. And I think Auckland is mighty lucky to have Ludo leaving, leading a larger team than I know of any big city in the world. <laughs> uh, he's obviously a very convincing fellow. Um, I, I hear he has, what, 35 or 40 people? Mm, yeah. You, you've got the capacity here to really pull this off. Um, and, and, and just before I leave this image, by 2050, 64 nations will have 30% of their population over 60. Um, Auckland is going to hit the mark in figuring out how to be a leader in this. Notions of disability are the second driver in the world on issues of inclusive design. One in seven people on the planet have a disability. And I have to tell you that it's really more like one in five. Many of my colleagues in Asia don't actually like to acknowledge that people with brain-based conditions should be counted. Uh, and unfortunately, that means that there is a dramatic undercount in parts of the world. Same, the same applies in Africa. Very little counting of brain-based conditions, which are the most rapidly rising reason for disability in the world. I'm borrowing here from my much deeper understanding about reasons for disability in the United States. Um, we've got pretty good statisticians, and this is a, this is a, a game we've been playing for 60 years. Um, but the most prevalent type of disabilities for children, 
is something that has changed fundamentally since I was a child, when physical disabilities were the primary reason for, for a, a disability in children. Today, 80% of reasons for childhood disability are brain-based. And part of that is because we have conditions that didn't exist in high proportions 20 or 50 years ago, things like autism spectrum disorder. But it's also true that we live in a world in which being able to learn and to work is absolutely critical in the modern world. And we need our children to be able to thrive. And thus we are looking at supports that will make that possible in school in preparing for work. When we're looking at adults, we're looking mostly at disability that is occurring in chronic conditions. We live long enough and survive long enough, so most of us are going to experience chronic conditions at least for part of our lives. We live long enough to be able to lose our acuity of sight and hearing. We live long enough for the arthritis that was a small irritation at 50 to become something that can be profoundly limiting at 80. But however we look at this and however diverse it is, we're really looking at three broad categories. But I would urge you to think about these broad categories in every facet of design, and that's physical, sensory, and brain-based conditions. Whether that is the design of a website or distance learning or the design of a building like this or of the extraordinary Erdman design that Auckland is so investing in getting right. The disability rate in Auckland is 19%. It's pretty clear to me in just a very short time here that Auckland has been a magnet for young people. Uh, New Zealand's rate is higher, um, and the Maori and Pacific people have higher rates of disability. This is true all over the world. People who are likely to be characterized by low, lower socioeconomic assets are likely to have higher rates of disability for all kinds of reasons. Statistics on incidence and prevalence of disability are notoriously varied based on data methodology. The primary data methodology of determining who has a disability in the world is that they ask you. And my sister would back me up to say that our dad, who is no longer with us, who was blind and deaf and ate through a stomach tube and was on oxygen and walked with a cane, wasn't a guy with a disability in his mind. Honey, I've never used a wheelchair. So that meant there was a hard line in his mind. I was completely unsuccessful in converting my father to have any sensitivity around these issues. Um, Record-breaking record world-class cultural diversity. I thought I had been pretty attuned to the most savvy city in the world on embracing cultural diversity, and that's Toronto, which I've come to love. But I think you guys, you might be a little smaller, but I think you're going to what I would have once said, Trump. <laughs> Toronto. You're going to eat Toronto's lunch. Um, and I think that's partly because Toronto needed to do something to welcome immigrants to a city that was not distinguished for its diversity and was aging rapidly and was remarkably white. And now their website is translated into 41 languages. And it's become a place that people love to visit. It's full of terrific experiences in the public realm. Believe me, the old, the old story about Toronto when I was a kid, 
if you won the prize for something and you got a trip to Toronto, the top winner got two days and the second prize was a week. <laughs> That's no longer true. But you, uh, the immigrant arrivals, arrive, have been at an historic high since 2014 in Auckland in New Zealand, but Auckland attracts more than half. You're also home to the largest Maori, yeah, Maori population in New Zealand with 11% of the population. I must say my exposure today to a little bit of that extraordinary culture was among the most moving aspects of this extraordinary trip, and I'm deeply grateful for that. And almost 40% of Aucklanders were not born in New Zealand. What an extraordinary fact. That distinguishes you in a big way and is a reason for tremendous pride. Um, I want to actually take a little bit of your time this evening um, to prick a few balloons, a few ideas that all of us are familiar with. And I think if we are going to engage in transformative design and in consequential innovation, we've got to actually stick one of those pins in a number of balloons. And I want to start with the idea of accessibility. I don't want to take anything away from accessibility as an absolute ground level baseline for this idea of design that includes. But I gotta say, as the country that did this earlier than anybody else, we're at a point where it's important to recognize what's not working. What is working is that the idea of design as a civil and human right is a big idea. And it's a big idea. I think our country can actually take some credit for that. I'm quite quick to critique my country, but I think we were the first ones to actually recognize that the only way you could extend civil rights to people with disabilities was to actually pay some attention to design. But today, two unintended consequences prevail, and they are deeply problematic. One, unfortunately represented by my dad, an assumption that there is a sharp line between us and them. I was unsuccessful with my father, but I will spend the rest of my days trying to recognize or get others to recognize there is no sharp line. I'm talking about the human condition. And the other thing that we are left with in a world that has deep infrastructure, extensive infrastructure on accessibility, and I'm proud of that, but I gotta tell you, there is no recipe for big ideas when all anybody hears is just tell me what I have to do. Inspirational, just tell me what I have to do? Attractive to any young designer, just tell me what I have to do? No way, no way. We've got to find another way. Another balloon, my colleagues at IDEO, we owe them a great deal for getting people to think differently about design. And I'm very grateful for that. They have really made it important that this is a deeply human process. It relies on our ability to be intuitive naturally as part of being human and to see and recognize patterns, to construct emotionally meaningful ideas, express ourselves. Overlapping process, it's not an iterative process that's clean and tidy, it's really messy, and they've made people celebrate that. They've also made it clear, you can't lead without a great, great story easily told, and they do that brilliantly. They initiated this thing called design thinking, and I've got to say, I don't know if it's happening all that much in New Zealand, but when the Harvard Business Review does a cover on design thinking, you know that it's reached another level. 
So we now have MBA programs where you can do a specialty in design. Interesting. So successful that they've become the largest design consultancy in the world. But design thinking and making things people want can tend towards solving all the wrong problems, can tend towards something other than consequential. And I want to share some of, some of the examples of inconsequential design from a colleague, Alison Arif, who writes for the New York Times. These are some recent innovations. A smart button and zipper that alerts you when your fly is down. <laughs> it has some utility, but consequential, I don't think so. A service that delivers beer right to your door, perhaps consequential. A service that sends someone to fill your car with gas. Has this reached New Zealand yet? It is being advertised everywhere in the States. It's quite something. And lastly, a sensor placed in your child's diaper that sends you an alert when the diaper needs changing. There's an app for that. I actually thought that diapers were one of those multi-sensory experiences that were working quite well. But there's an app for that. Some venture capitalists thought that was worth some big money. Maslow's hierarchy of need. We all grew up getting some kind of exposure to Maslow's hierarchy of need. Mr. Maslow, uh, an immigrant to the United States, a very clever fellow, uh, was able to promulgate this idea without ever testing it. The pyramid, the beguiled business. And I'd have to say that there's been a few efforts to actually question, does this pyramid really make sense? And one of the things that we have at our disposal today there's a whole lot of information from social sciences that have been amplified by new information from neuroscience. And it turns out that our physiological needs may not actually trump <laughs> our social needs. That social may really be the very baseline of that hierarchy of needs. Many babies lately that are taking care of themselves. We are born into dependence. And I think it's important for us to start thinking about this. And to spend another second on this notion of where does neuroscience fall. This is my friend Anne Sussman, who's the co-author of a book called Cognitive Architecture. And we've been doing a load of studies with Anne on eye tracking, on how people look at buildings, and whether architects actually look at buildings in a different way than mere mortals. They do. But among the things that neuroscientists have found out is that our brains are remarkably resonant with the brains of some of our predecessors that include rats and snakes and quite primitive creatures. And we share some of those things. I would urge you to think about the next time you go into a restaurant that is largely empty. Is there anyone in a nearly empty restaurant who sits dead center in the middle? No, no, where we sit on the edge. It's because, like the rat, we need the protection of the edge. So Anne and a lot of others have been looking at how do we design environments that actually work with the deepest part of how our brains work. And this is an example of uh, satisfying the subconscious need to feel seen. Interesting stuff. And I think Auckland's doing quite well on this. Another balloon I'd like to stick a pin in is the idea that we want to aspire to the average. Baloney. Taylorism 
was a 19th century idea in order to drive the idea that we had to get lots of people to be very average in order to work in those factories. We don't need that anymore. And they've blown big holes in this idea of average. And this fellow, author and professor Todd Rose, is one of them. And he celebrates the idea of something called jaggedness. Human qualities, including body size, intelligence, talent, character, are multidimensional and cannot be reduced to a single score or category. Um, pick up his book, The End of Average, and you will find yourself reading whole chunks of it to your near and dear ones, because uh, it is full of things that reinforce, you're not crazy, that those people who tick off all the big boxes and are in all the best schools and graduate top of their class may not be the people who can do the work we need to have done today. They are really good at doing that not necessarily at solving your problems or at innovating. Um, he is arguing that equal fit is the only thing that equals, that offers equal opportunity. And I would urge you to take a look at his, his website um, in which he's really talking about individuality as the reality that we live with and to celebrate that as something that, that will give many people who worry about not being average, a little heart, um, that they are just fine. Inclusive design, a response to a changed demographic reality. These two fellows are actually the ones that I like to give credit. Um, both of them are long gone now. But two architects, and both of them had polio when polio was a global epidemic, uh, Ron Mason in the United States and Selwyn Goldsmith in the United Kingdom. Uh, Ron had polio at eight, Selwyn just after, after finishing architecture school. Um, but they had credibility because these were guys with disabilities that were visible, perfectly obvious. Um, and they said, hmm, not about me. Uh, they stressed that we need to be clear about the difference between accessibility and universal design. And one of the reasons I don't use the term universal design all that much anymore is that it's gotten kind of watered down in my country. So that it's a little bit like a flat white on accessibility or a black coffee. Um, I I'm really talking about something that's a bigger idea and more transformative. And Selwyn argued for a shift to a bottom-up way of thinking that reframes normal. I would love to see some progress on reframing normal as individual and not as average. This thing called universal design, inclusive design, design for all our friends in the, UK, in the, in the European Union tend to use the hyphenated version of design for all. It's a framework for thinking differently about humans, about designing everything, not as special, but as anticipating the true diversity of our time and welcoming that. Um, we use the term human-centered design of everything with everyone in mind. I have to say that uh, IDEO started using human-centered design about five months after we changed our name. I'm not sure that I was the wisest person in the world to have thought about that change of name but we've lived with it. Um, I want to back up here. The principles of universal design were something that our organization, along with four other organizations, developed in 1997. They are pretty ordinary ideas about good design. Equitable, flexible, simple and intuitive, perceptible, tolerant for, tolerance for error, low physical effort, and size and space for approach and use, not revolutionary design ideas. Uh, and there are various interpretations around the world I'm actually sharing one from India. Our colleagues in India have actually supplemented this. This is not a replacement, but a supplement 
it really looks at equitable, usable, cultural, um, and economic and aesthetics as resonant in their culture. One of the things that the Indian world has looked at is the absolutely critical reality of economic diversity as part of the mix of thinking about inclusive cities. You may know that we are losing diversity very rapidly in North America because we are pricing it out. In San Francisco, not so long ago, we had more than 20% of the population African-American. We are now down to about 3%. That isn't a fate that you want to embrace for Auckland, which means in thinking about equity and thinking about inclusion, economic has got to be part of the picture. All of this rests on an idea that the World Health Organization, the UN health arm, um, redefined in 2001, and basically looking around in realizing that diagnosis does not determine destiny. We have no reason to believe those old ideas anymore. They basically said functional limitation is now a universal human experience. There, I buy the universal. If you're, if you're lucky enough not to die young, you will meet functional limitation. Probably multiple variations on that. They equalize mental and physical reasons, regardless of the fact that it was the toughest sell for them. They, they've told me uh, at, at WHO that they probably could have done this work in a year if they didn't insist on this provision. There's still a great deal of resistance that the brain somehow is equal to physical reasons for functional impairment. Most important for this idea that design matters in a whole new way is the idea that if functional limitation is now a universal human experience, we need to think about disability as a contextual phenomenon. That we experience disability at the intersection of us, mere humans, with our functional limitations, and the environment. And they were smart enough at that very first moment of the 21st century to say holistically define physical communication information, policy, and social or attitudinal. They knew that we could not think about the environment in a simplistic 20th century way. They defined, when they did this, they also said, this is not about barrier removal. Barrier removal doesn't go far enough. It's not about accessibility alone. This is about identifying facilitators in all of those environments that are responsible to the rising proportion of human diversity in a way that makes it work. And I'm pleased to see that the UN has once again got another iteration of goals. And this is the Sustainable Development Goals. I trust you might be working with these. Are you yet working with the Sustainable Development Goals? The United States, for reasons I can't explain, has basically not yet noted that these are out. Um, but the intent here is to ensure that economic growth is also socially just and environmentally sustainable. There is still not enough there on inclusive design, and I'm hoping we can make some progress with them in the coming year. One of the things I would urge you to think about here in Auckland, and I think it is absolutely the most doable thing in the world, we need to understand what works and what fails in real places with real people. And I would suggest you take a page from our book, which is called Contextual, Contextual Inquiry Research, working with user experts, 
people whose life experience is different from the typical designer. And I am not talking about personas. I'm not talking about people who are different that were invented by design students. Bad idea. They never talk back and they never have a surprising idea. Do not go down that road. But working with real users, thrilling. We've got about 230 people in Boston that we work with, from teenagers to people in the 90s, people across the spectrum of, of, of uh, functional limitation, so it's physical and sensory and brain-based, sometimes all three, um, and also people across the spectrum of culture. We would not think of doing, for example, we're currently reviewing the website for our public transit uh, uh, entity, and we're using people from teenagers to those non-digital natives in their 70s and 80s. Uh, to figure out what actually works in that website, testing and testing. And also people who are new immigrants. Can a Chinese national who has only been in Boston five years and is 78 figure out how to use this website? So those are the kinds of things a user ex expert can help you do. This idea about context in designing for diversity is also at the heart of of the Madrid International Plan of Action, which is assuring, enabling, and supporting environments. And this is at the heart of our best work in the world on aging cities, on, on age-friendly cities. Uh, is, is Auckland pursuing age-friendly cities? Not currently. You should get on that, that bandwagon. You could pull that off very readily. Um, and the last one, which Auckland deserves a great deal, or New Zealand, I should say, deserves a great round of applause for New Zealand's role in the UN Convention on the Human Rights of People with Disabilities. Um, I worked very closely with the UN um, in the four and a half years to the run-up of this. Uh, I actually had, you may know that the United States often uh, has had sort of a checkered history. Um, my government did not participate in the development of the convention because we knew it all. Um, we, had, <laughs> we had nine people sitting in the room every day. Um, my colleagues at the UN actually advised that I should pretend I was Canadian. Um, <laughs> But in the end, um, we signed it. Uh, President Obama signed it. It took us a while. Um, and uh, we are making a bit of progress uh, in the last eight years. Uh, the image on the, on the, on the uh, right side of your screen is actually uh, the gang in Kathmandu. Uh, and the central guy and the big uh, leader on this is a testament to the power of opportunity for people um, who once upon a time were just dismissed. Uh, his name is Deepak KC. He was dropped off at an orphanage at uh, six days old, and he is actually an extraordinary architect who's doing organizing all over the world. Uh, this was before they took off for an organizing trip on the CRPD to Mongolia. This is a world you want to live in. A few illustrations. Let me share some stories of a spectrum of environments. Um, I'm going to back up there. Um, this is a friend of mine. Uh, Junko Kobayashi in Tokyo. Uh, she's Japan's toilet queen. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you that you can have an inclusive cities with no public toilets. Don't pay any attention to Los Angeles, which doesn't seem to have any. Um, it is really a measure of civilization. And it is also a measure of great design uh, when you do it well. And the Japanese do it better than anyone. Um, but I think you can, you can get there. Um, this is a good example of age-friendly New York. Um, you may know that the United States took out most of our street benches because we didn't actually want homeless people to have a place to sleep. 
so we eliminated many of them in cities. Um, H-Friendly New York has actually returned them um, and has a better design. So they have 1,500 plus new street benches and they invited older people throughout the city to advise on where they go. Uh, a pretty terrific sense of ownership has grown up around that. These are colleagues from, uh, from England. And this is a, a really clever take on attitude as absolutely at the core of getting this right. Uh, it is, this is about access to live music for everybody. And it's brilliantly led by a woman named Suzanne Bull, um, who's a woman with a disability and a junkie for fabulous live music, I think four or five times a week. Um, but they have made an emphasis on ensuring the whole experience and they have done this with a process of conversion that is now in the hundreds of entities in the UK. Singapore, our friends up the road, have actually done this rather well. It can be easy to dismiss Singapore because you know when they say, this is what we're going to do now, they actually do it. Nonetheless, they do some things brilliantly, and this is something they've done extraordinarily well. It followed very quickly on the heels of them committing to accessibility and, and environmental sustainability, and they used the same tools they used on environmental sustainability. They incentivized architects and developers. And that was critically important. So every year there is a competition. And the Singaporeans are mad for competitions. And it made an enormous difference in their willingness to jump on this bandwagon. Uh, so this is an example of the estates in Singapore. I'm sure many of you have been to Singapore. True? Singaporean? Yeah. 85% of the population lives in these estates. And they do this partly be to be able to have shared public space in the outer doors. Uh, they have managed to meet their needs for housing for an aging population within these de large developments. They have made wise use of outdoor areas, and they prioritize spaces for children and older people to play outside. This is an example from our friends in Toronto that I'll have to admit I no longer have quite the same level of uh, complete uh, awe uh, now that you guys have actually stepped into that first place. But they are doing some great things. And this firm, Quadrangle, is one of the best. Um, and this is just a really simple building. Everybody's got a ton of these in downtowns. have been around for a while. A really ordinary building that was used for self-storage. And now it's an innovation building. So it's all about go-go uh, entrepreneurs. And they've transformed the building partly by transforming the lobby, this gorgeous thing with ramps and bright orange. Um, and everybody thinks this is the coolest place around, even though it started up as a nasty little rabbit warren of stairs. It's one of our projects. Um, lucky enough to be able to design, uh, renovate, uh, design a renovation for an architectural college. Architectural college have so many um, architectural firms that intersect at them. It had to be an oddball group like us to take on the renovation of this building. But a wonderful historic building, um, and we actually tackled historic preservation, green and inclusive design uh, in this renovation in downtown Boston. It started out its life as a police station, and then it became the Institute of Contemporary Art, which pretty much destroyed all the historic features, and we've tried to bring some of those back. London South Bank, I'm sure many of you know uh, the extraordinary work that's been done on the South Bank. I think it's the, 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 the real um, appetite for London. I always start on the South Bank, and I try to stay there as much as I can. But some very nice work there, very participatory, and very smart features. The French are sometimes dismissed as not being interested. You know, the French 
uh, never get old and uh, never admit to disability. Um, that's not really true anymore. The French are actually carving their own way in this world and doing it with the usual aesthetic flair. Um, when my colleagues in the preservation world in the US disparage what can be done that is aesthetically satisfying, um, I like to point to some of the French examples that we've had the pleasure of looking at. And this is the Chateau of the Dukes of Brittany in Nantes. Um, and if a 16th century stone castle can be made into an extraordinarily cool environment that is also fully inclusive, I think we can do better in the States. It's a really simple example of the small details that make a difference. And to point out what's accessible and what's inclusively designed. This is a carousel that was created out of drawings by third graders. They developed the original ideas for creatures that were Boston creatures that would become the Boston carousel on the Rose Kennedy Greenway. And it had to be accessible because that's the law. And thus, it has ramps that pull out from the bottom. And they came to us and wanted something more. They wanted it to be inclusive. What is this all about? What would you have us do? And we met with a designer who was not interested at all. Um, but he came round. And one of the things we did was to get him to think about children today. And remember that spectrum of children and what constitutes disability today. Among those things are children that cannot go round and round and up and down at the same time. So we did a rabbit on this carousel that has a gorgeous rabbit, a gorgeous carrot. And that rabbit does not go up and down. It goes around like all the other animals, but it does not go up and down. And that young man rode for the first two hours on opening day. He's 21 and has had almost no experience in public space. And he loved it. The bottom picture um, is of a group of women, not the usual carousel riders. But as you can see, they don't actually have to mount an animal. They can sit on a bench. It's another example from Canada. Canada, is, Canada has no national laws, and yet they are doing some very interesting work at the, at the prefecture level or the state level. Ontario is the lead, but this is not Ontario. This is actually Winnipeg. Not uh, everybody's short list of destinations in the world to hit. Um, but this is an extraordinary place and great fun. Um, they made a commitment from the get-go, from the first idea of a human rights museum for Canada. This was a place that was going to raise the bar, set the bar on inclusive design in exhibits. Not in exhibits, in the whole museum. It's a fascinating place. We worked on this uh, to some extent, particularly on the wayfinding aspects of it. Uh, a little out of the way, perhaps, but worth a trip. I think one of the things they've done as well as anyone in the world is the state-of-the-art app. Everybody who does the state-of-the-art app, these guys actually get it right. Back to the French. And I hear Auckland is talking about light rail. Are they talking out loud about that? Yes? Yes? Are you going to do it? Do it. Do it. It is the most effective stealth design choice for inclusive cities that you could make. There is simply nothing as powerful as ease of transit. The idea of on and off seamlessly, you don't have to think, you don't have to plan. It is amazing. And the French, not the Parisians, but the French in secondary cities across the nation have bought into this idea of light rail with a quality of French elegance and style. 
that you really have to study. So this is my favorite. This is Bordeaux. And as you can see, there is no catenary. This is simply magic. These float like magic carpet trains. And this is no small feat. This is a big system. There are three separate lines and 89 transit stations. But it has transformed Bordeaux, which you may know is the second city in France in terms of historic treasures, second only to Paris. And they've made this work. And look how close to the historic structures. One more tour in Singapore. This is a testament that you can do something with outdoor parking lots. This started out its life for 35 years as outdoor parking at a Singapore estate, one of the first estates in downtown Singapore. It is now a sensory garden, quite extraordinary. And it aligns with that Singaporean emphasis that we want our outdoor spaces to be places for people to play who are children and who are old. And this is one of those delightful places and very multi-century. I don't want to ignore the United States. Uh, and we do some things well. And this is one of the delights of mayoral leadership. We had the pleasure of listening to Mayor Goff this morning. And I do hope you got every word of that down. And you're going to disseminate every word of it because it will shame mayors across the land, um, or at least across the world, actually. Um, but the mayor, Mayor Daly, actually, is the responsible party in Chicago. Anybody been to Millennium Park? Good place. Really a good place. Um, thrilling, actually. And this is a place that, from the get-go, was born of an idea of inclusion and welcome. And it works. London has actually done some of the best guidelines on inclusive housing, accessible housing to begin with, and then inclusive housing. But this project at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park is built on the old 2012 Olympic site. And the architect who was responsible for this, Manisha Patel, a young Indian immigrant to London, was not satisfied with the caliber of the design guidelines that existed. And she spent over a year going into the community, meeting with people in their turf, asking what they wanted and needed and reinvented a whole set of housing styles for Chobin Manor, which is her project, 850 homes, uh, a very large project. One of the things she did is an extraordinary design of a house, which is part of a dense urban uh, block. Uh, this is a house that has a smart design of a courtyard immediately behind the house, and on the other side of that courtyard, a small apartment. And it's part of the house. You buy the house, and you get the small apartment. And that small apartment is intended to respond to issues across the lifespan. It's where the nanny lives, so she doesn't hear you having an argument. It's where your teenage kids live when you can't bear them under your roof anymore. It's where you bring your parents when you really can't bear to live in their house, and they need you. And it's where one day you can actually make some money on renting that out. And then maybe at the tail end, you have people who are helping to take care of you and making sure you don't have to leave that house. And you've got a place for them to live under your roof that is affordable for you to be able to manage. Yep. I don't need that long. <laughs> um, I have a, a small suggestion. 
And God knows you guys are doing such good work. I don't have a lot of suggestions for you. I just want to stand back and applaud as all this rolls out for you. But remember we looked at priority one. Create a strong, inclusive, and equitable society that ensures opportunity for all Aucklanders. In order to make that real, I would suggest that you add uh, a principle for implementation. Employ design as a tool of social equity that anticipates functional limitation and goes beyond barrier removal to enabling and facilitating environments. At least give it some thought. And last points. You've got to focus on getting upstream through policy, and I think Auckland has already proven that they get that. You need to engage developers as well as designers. Developers call the shots in the end, and you've got to get them on board. You've got to get them to understand that this is partly about making great places. I would urge you to think about getting diverse user experts into design school studio. Architects and designers create the context for our lives. And if they are exposed to no one but people who are just like them, they won't get it. And if they design personas that never talk back, we're in trouble. This is beyond self-expression. This is beyond innovation. This is a world in which we need designers to help us figure out how to really be able to celebrate the diversity of our world in the 21st century. Consequential design is inclusive design. And I also, I'm not shining you on, but know that Auckland has the potential to be a global model. And we sorely need a global model that doesn't drive out the diversity by not thinking about all facets of this. Uh, and, I, and I strongly urge you to remember that economic facet, or you will lose the extraordinary diversity that characterizes you today. And, and I, you've noticed I've used a number of Saul Steinberg drawings. Um, and uh, this is one that I want you to take, take a minute to look at. I do, I have, or I am. You are about I am. You can be so much more than I do or I have. Thank you very much. Wow, what a tour de force. That was fantastic. I was sort of riveted there. Thank you. Um, Right, I um, I can't. Uh, is it, I've been I've been doing this for quite a while actually, and I, I don't think I can um, trump the uh, <laughs> the, di the diaper application app we, at we all. A every time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't trump it. Um, right, that was that was wonderful. Thank you so much, and um, what an incredible story there as well. You really have got a great turn of phrase as well, so um, it's it's wonderful. So thank you so much. What we're going to do, um, give Valerie a few minutes of, of a breather, uh, perhaps a, would you, a glass of wine or a, uh, maybe a bottle of water. 
Um, and uh, what I'm going to do is invite two fantastic uh, people up on stage to uh, join Valerie for a bit of a panel discussion, and then we're going to talk um, with yourselves and have some Q&A. So I'm just going to um, invite Jane and uh, Martine up. So Jane, would you mind joining uh, Valerie on stage? And I'll, uh, come and I'll come and get you, Martine. Okay, so we've had we've got Weston who's joined us on the stage as well. So um, that's after. Right, so we've got two amazing, amazing ladies who are going to join us for a bit of a discussion. What I'm going to do is probably um, I'll introduce each of you at one at a time, and then uh, ask a question if that's okay, and then ask you to answer that question, and then we'll, we'll go to the next person, and then we'll come back to Valerie, and then we'll start the the discussion. So, Jane, are you ready? So. Um, Welcome, Jane, and good afternoon. So, look, thank you for um, coming along today. Jane is the founding director of the uh, newly established Centre for Universal Design in Australia. And she's really, really well placed to give us a view on what's happening across the sort of Australia, Asia Pacific. So, it's, it's great to have you here. And especially recently, Jane ran a uh, Universal Design uh, conference, um, which was last month in Sydney. And so, um, which brought together experts from all around the world. So it's going to be great to hear a little bit about how, how that went. Um, Jane has a background in community services spanning more than 30 years, and her experiences range from direct service provision to senior management roles. She has a PhD in urban studies, specifically looking at industry barriers to universal design in Australian housing. Um, she was also awarded, awarded the Churchill Fellowship in 2004, and um, that was really to look at universal design across across the world. She has also travelled to Auckland, especially to attend uh, tonight's uh, Auckland Conversations and the Auckland, the Urban Design sort of um, Universal Design Symposium. Um, so we really couldn't resist asking her to join us on the panel and share her sort of wisdom and insights. So to Jane, uh, a question, uh, perhaps uh, for the audience: um, Could you tell me how you got involved in? In universal design in the first place what, what was it that, that, that sort of what was the clarion call perhaps and I'd also be interested to hear about what do you think are the the key the, what's the key finding perhaps of your Churchill trip is that all right yep. are we uh, we all mic'd up and everything do you want to try that out Absolutely. is that okay everybody in the back here I'm assuming Everyone can hear me. Yes, I can hear my voice now. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, thank you for the question. Um, that's a question that's been asked of me before, and I'm still stumbling over an answer to it because uh, I can't really remember how I came to understand what universal design is. And I can only assume that I've been like a lot of other people who have come to it step by step by gradual 
kind of understanding uh, in mixing. I mean, most of my background has been working with people with disability and in old, with older people. And uh, some things gradually become obvious to you uh, if you look closely enough. And uh, it was when I was working at the Independent Living Centre in New South Wales, working alongside occupational therapists and access consultants, I kept wondering, you know, why do we have to keep telling um, architects and designers the same thing over and over again? Why can't they just remember what we tell them the first time? <laughs> and uh, why, why do we have to... You know, it's great income for us because we're um, a community-based organisation. There's a little bit of extra cash for us doing this consulting. Uh, it took me a while to realise that they weren't really interested in learning about it at all. They were only interested in having somebody else, a consultant, tick off to say that they've met their accessibility requirements. So that got me thinking uh, a lot more about that and that's when I applied for the Churchill Fellowship. Uh, because I felt, you know, that we needed to do a whole lot more about how to get more people understanding that disability is just part of the human spectrum, it's part of living. And uh, when we're talking about take away messages from the Churchill Fellowship, uh, it was um, this amazing woman who you get to meet. I, I can, if you've got Churchill fellowships happening here, I can only recommend them because you get to meet the most amazing people unexpectedly. And for me, one of those was uh, Judy Human, who was then working at the World Bank. Uh, she's now in the State Department. Yeah, that's right. And uh, she said to me, there are only two kinds of people in the world, people with disability and people yet to have a disability. So that was one of my takeaway messages. But my Churchill Fellowship was actually, what are other people doing in other places? I know there are centres for universal design and accessible environments around the world. How did they get set up and how did they get going? So that was my quest. Uh, so not only did I go to uh, North America, but I went to Denmark, uh, the UK, and to um, the Netherlands as well. And just to come around to the question about the take-home messages, so I've got that one. Uh, the other one was be everywhere on the issues. If you really want to do uh, something about this, you have to be everywhere where the topic is happening. So where am I now? I'm here. <laughs> and uh, don't miss, up, miss that chance. And as Martine said uh, to me just now, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So I think that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've stolen your line. <laughs> uh, so it's that nothing about us without us. And look, the other more serious thing that um, probably I uh, got a real understanding for was, was a bit of a conundrum, and that is we are talking about a group of people who are included, sorry, excluded, wanting to be included. And the issue of being included is requires you to actually identify that you're excluded in the first place. So what does that mean for inclusion in terms of uh, if you get partial inclusion, will you suddenly disappear and become invisible? Uh, and I think that that is uh, an issue that we still struggle with. So in order to be included, you need to show that you're excluded. 
And that then led me on to thinking more about what is inclusion and what is inclusiveness. And what I, the conclusion that I come to is inclusion is still something that we seek. It is a futuristic idea. Whereas inclusiveness is something that you have already. And what we need is inclusiveness. So that's my, that's my take home message. Well, that's fantastic. It, it, it's interesting, just reflecting on your, your point about the, uh, the architects and designers, you know, telling over and over and over again. And we have a, a new member of the team uh, called Phil Wahongi. He's, our, he's probably the world's first Māori design leader for a city. And uh, he's incredible. He talks about uh, us listening better. But he talks about you need to do more talking with your ears, he says to us. <laughs> And it's so interesting how people have this turn of phrase, but sometimes they kind of, it's a point, you know, right, on the, on the money. Um, so look, that's great. So look, it gives everybody in the audience a bit of a sense of, 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 of what Jane stands for and her experiences. So we'll, we'll hopefully tease out some questions. Uh, for, so thank you for your answer. It was, it was great. Um, next up, I'd like to, uh, just thrilled to um, invite, well, not invite, but Martine's already um, up at the, the stage with us. Uh, Martine Abel is a... Um, ah, an extraordinary woman. Um, what I'd like to do is just quickly uh, take you through her um, her bio. Um, I'm just uh, trying to find it. <laughs> there we go. I've got bits of paper. I was told you've got too many. You're going to get confused. So here we go. Martine is a um, works as a specialist advisor um, within Auckland Council's uh, community empowerment uh, unit. She's also the strategic objective leader access to the environment and transport at the World Blind Union, which is an international advocacy organisation representing 285 million blind and partially sighted persons across the world. Um, Martine also serves on, on many, many boards, and just a few of those are, are following. Um, New Zealand's only community law centre specialising in disability matters, uh, the Auckland Disability Law, Disability Connect and Independent Living Services, and blind citizens of New Zealand. Martine is, is totally blind and is accompanied by her guide dog, Weston. So what I thought I'd do is ask you um, a question, really, um, Martine, was, you know, in terms of um, Auckland Council, um, there are several things that we're, we're doing and uh, we're working really well on, on, in many areas. But you, I'd like to ask you, Auckland Council has committed... Um, itself to a, an empowerment, commun empowering communities unit or a, approach um, by establishing this unit. <laughs> uh, what does this mean um, in terms of universal design and access to the environment? Uh, thank you very much. I think most people associate local government with a regulatory and legislative role. And we sometimes forget that we also have a facilitation and systemic advocacy role, where the emotions come in, I think. Um, and, and that is where this new unit comes in. It was established exactly a year ago. The Yarwood um, Community Development and Safety Unit got disestablished, and it's now empowered communities. Because it's supposed to be more about, instead of just handing out funding for a local group to meet uh, once a week for coffee, or sponsoring an event, or um, enabling a community hall to be uh, inexpensively rented. So we meant to be more dynamic. In other words, 
where communities let us know what they'd like to do, how they'd like to contribute to society, and we support them, and we don't necessarily steer them. And that's where the problem often comes in, because if someone says to us, I can't access my local swimming pool for rehabilitation or recreational reasons, or I can't take my kids to the beach, I can't go fishing, um, or, or, you know, I, I can't take my dog to the park, that disabled person or older person or um, person that um, is not sure about their environment is actually excluded from participating in society. So actually we're then disempowering them. So for me the link is between if council is responsible to have our physical environment accessible and inclusive, then we do want, don't want to see people potentially housebound because then we're actually doing the opposite. The new empowered communities approach focus on the participation of diverse communities. And we've got the words in there, equity and inclusion. And many people uh, in, interchange equity and equality. And I often prefer to say equality is probably the democracy. You know, say, for instance, a whole local board vote to have a new safe beach or a new pool. That is, that is equality. People stuck their hand up. That was voted in as a, as, a, uh, as a priority. The equity comes in who can actually use that pool or beach accessibly and who will be excluded from its use. That's a really good, really good answer. I, I just wanted to perhaps just, just probe a bit further, if you don't mind. I, I guess it was interesting... You know, we heard earlier about the diversity of Auckland's population, and uh, it seems to me that there are challenges is around communication with the certain groups. And how, how do you see that as a, a challenge as well? You know, are we talking to the right people? I mean, are the people turning up at the local board those that are actually <laughs> utilising the city and using the city? I, I think there's a, is there a challenge there around the actual communication with those diverse groups? Definitely. The recent local elections, and many of them in the past, do show us that there is not the most highest participation. Mostly people say, I don't know the people, and I'm not sure what they stand for, and it's better than not to vote. And it is hard to say to people, go to a local board meeting, because sometimes it, it appears quite, you know, like a bureaucratic system. You wait for an open forum, and maybe the time runs out, and these specific... <laughs> language to use, but now that we have captioning, NZSL interpretation, braille, easy read documentation, we actually have local boards such as Waitamata, and just in the process of developing um, uh, Otahu Papatoi, that, that's, that's going to work on an accessible plan, and that means those local boards, and very specifically Waitamata, have actually worked out local plans where they know exactly how to communicate accessibly with their local communities. You know, a, a crucial example, and that's probably where the uh, rubber hits the road, is where um, someone's dog is impounded uh, because the deaf person didn't realize that a certain breed is classed as a dangerous dog breed. So the letter they received about the impoundment is about the impoundment because of the dangerous dog breed. And all that person might think because of a different literacy standard and because English is their second language, because New Zealand sign is their first language, that they can just pay a cost 
or that don't know how long how long it is. It's very a system, and of course, the, the law says to us, ignorance is no excuse. So we can we can often work in situations which is quite with, with dire consequences to people because of lack of communication appropriateness that we actually did not communicate it with, and they truly had ignorance on their side. Well, they, they gave some really interesting insights into the, the challenges of and interpretation and lack of, you know, I guess, confused communication. Um, so thank you. Thank you, uh, both of you. Um, I think we should just break it open to the audience. I, I was going to ask Valerie a question, but I, I think I'll come back to that one a bit later. So we've got some, we've got two mics. We've got two of the team, Jean, and who else have we got? Another, can't see in the dark there. Okay, there's, there's two mics. That's fantastic. So there's a lady here in the middle. Let's start there, and then maybe somebody from that side. Kirst, do, you want to, do you want to grab the, the right? Okay. Hi. Um, I have a question for Valerie. Um, I'm a member of a community-led group in Auckland and Ponsonby, and I consider us like user experts, which you call user experts. However, it's not a problem for us to get in touch with the council or university of architecture to help us, but we've had a hard problem getting in touch with architects and landscape architects. Um, and so what do you suggest for groups of just community-led groups of a better way other than email and just calling or how to learn more about ways to contact them as a design group. Are you, if I could just ask for clarification, are you working on a specific project? Yes, where we have a space that the council has asked us to collect information about to design in the future that council will be in charge of designing, but we're the facilitators in collecting what the community wants in the local area. But I rather maybe I was trying to meet with architects to get ideas about it, but it's just hard as a user expert just walking the street past the area back and forth. <laughs> I didn't want to ask the wrong questions of the community if an architect could help guide that. I don't know what's your suggestion. I, I actually th I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the leader here in the front row. Uh, it would it would seem. Do you want to? I mean, I have some ideas, but I think it would be Can interesting. You get this and, and you'll need a microphone. Um, but, but I think part of it is that if you've got trade organizations in architecture and landscape architecture who are committed to these ideas, they are your natural partner, and they will attract people. Is, is that true? So um, I'm the CEO for Architectural Designers New Zealand. So we represent um, primarily architectural designers, but also some architects as well. And um, I think that may be connecting with the local people here in Auckland and also um, the local NZIA. I think there's enough people that would be keen to support. Absolutely. And, and, and I think the other thing is that there is enormous value in media and getting some visibility about what you're doing. Telling stories is so powerful. Um, and being concrete about it, not just that you're doing it, but these are the things that we're finding. And people are so surprised that there's often very small things that confront people's ability to participate, to fully engage in an experience that other people take for granted. So it's, you know, I think I'm delighted to hear that you're doing it. I was in that neighborhood for the first time ever last night, and I can absolutely see that it is a gem. Good luck. I'll, there's a lady in the middle there. Um, I, so would you mind, let, should we talk afterwards? I mean, I, we've, got, we've got connections to to thousands of architects and designers and will happily pass you their way. Hello. Hi, I'm just here. <laughs> um, 
we all get old and we were all once young and we've spoken a lot about the disabled and the elderly but you know, I'm lucky enough to have a yard for my kids, but I know that in the future there's going to be much more dense housing. And I'm wondering what the answers might be to giving our children under the age of 10, 12, say, access to the city and places of play. Because I don't know what they're going to do if I don't have a yard. So who'd like to pick that up? Which one of you? Jane. I'm happy to say something about that because uh, I live in Sydney um, and I have a little bit to do. I'm on one of the uh, City of Sydney's um, inclusion panel and uh, play spaces have come up several times um, in the way that you know all of our cities in Australia are wanting to maximise uh, the transportation and other services so it's much denser living. Um, but what I've seen is not only some good play spaces coming up within um, uh, higher density living areas, but accessible play spaces. And what I mean by accessible is uh, having, you know, like the spinner that, uh, you know, some of us would have scooted around and spun around and laid down and watched the sky go around, uh, is to make them wheelchair accessible, to have so water... Well, these are these are, these are places that are not near traffic, and actually, there's a movement in Australia called uh, Libby's Place, uh, which is a, a not-for-profit that was started up um, in memory of a, a child, Olivia, uh, and uh, they have been um, working really hard at getting local government to do more of these play spaces. They also include water play as well in some of them, and uh, it's really good to see that. Uh, we are starting to think not just of can we have a playground, but can we have an inclusive playground. So I don't know if there are other examples. Actually, if you go to Darling Harbour at Piermont, there's one right there. So, um, yeah. Okay, thank you, Jane. I, I mean, perhaps uh, with Martine or, and, and Valerie, I, I guess it's the question's also asking about, you know, how are we going to provide and, and where and the amount, I suppose, is really what you're also asking, isn't it? You're, you're concerned that you will lose... Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's interesting down on the waterfront here. I mean, just literally across the road, we the cheapest piece of of the kit that we built back when when we created the waterfront is a little park, um, a sand pit, and uh, it's free, and anyone could come down there. And the most the most sort of the cheapest part was actually a little bit of mound of earth that was left over from the development of the of the um, basketball pitch. We actually put a bit of cheap grass, uh, fake grass on top of that and the children just playing that all day long. So there are moments where, where it's been done, but I suppose it's really thinking about living at higher densities and wondering where these outdoor spaces are to play. Um, so we have lots of ideas around converting streets into parks, um, streets into green spaces. So, you know, it's about being challenging. There's, there's space out there. It's how you use it. Martine, I just I wondered if you um, had any thoughts on, on this, this idea? Interesting because it, it reminds me of a saying, it, it, you know, it, it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and we need to go back to that grassroots local community development where we can just leave um, our kid by a park and come back 15 minutes later and everything is fine because we all look after one another. And um, so I think in a big city that often gets lost, some of us don't know our neighbours, we if we probably lived kilometres apart, we would have. 
So I think part of the physical design we'll need to bear in mind is the social capital and how we can actually get in touch with one another more. Um, and I think some some uh, initiatives such as um, Connect4 and neighborhood plans, which are actually there for emergency preparedness in the case of a disaster, can actually prepare us for ordinary life strategies as well. If you see a kid walking to a pool, if you see someone that's, that, that's young, that it's actually um, everybody's responsibility. And that, you know, so I think it's a lot of it is that social cohesion as well. That's a good, good response. Um, thank you. We've got a couple of questions which are coming through the Twitter account. Let's 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 try this. There's always a challenge with the modern technology. I like the good old-fashioned question, but go for it. Is there any? any? Um, so the first question that we've got is: Given the link between nature and health, how do we keep nature accessible to all? I'll take that one. Yeah. Go for um, it. <laughs> we currently have a project that is right centered on that issue. Um, Massachusetts is a small state, um, but 10% of our entire state is state park. Lots and lots of state parks for all kinds of things. And they have done a great job on accessibility for special programming. So they have a universal access program, they call it. And it's about adaptive sport, and you can do all kinds of things. They have, they have ice hockey on wheelchairs, and they have kayaks that work for people who are, who are blind, and they've worked out ways for all of that to work. They've got hand cycles. But what they haven't got is state parks that welcome everybody without it being a special program. So we're actually working with them to really think about how do you create a sense of welcome? And of course, we're doing that with user experts. We're doing a review for the baseline of accessibility. But really, what we're doing is getting all kinds of people out there. So when I go back home, um, I am going to spend two days uh, tramping about in a big urban park that has all kinds of things. It has camping, it has fishing, it has uh, picnicking, hiking, and we're going to do that over two days. One day with people who are 70 and over and find out how it's working for them. And the next day we're going to do it with people who are on the autism spectrum and find out how it's working for them. I already know that both of them care about a place to pee. <laughs> and the only place to pee in this park is near the parking. And actually, how the devil do you walk for a couple of hours on a hike if there's no place to go? So we know that's part of it. We're really looking forward to finding out how it works. But it is the out of doors. We are so sick of health and recreation and assuming that older people should do that inside. <laughs> it, as if recreation could be experienced adequately around a chair. Uh, so I, I, I think it's, it's a movement. I think we're going to see this as something that um, is going to deliver a whole load of new ways to think about inclusive outdoor spaces that really do work for everyone. In Massachusetts, we have three organizations that are blind, birding organizations made up entirely of blind users. News to me, but they are zealously trying to get us to help make sure that parks work for them. So often down to just common, good old-fashioned common sense, isn't it? It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, there's a gentleman in the back there. Um, sorry, have we got have we got the oh, it's a lady. Sorry, I can't see. Oh, me. Hello, <laughs> welcome. Uh, 
uh, Shireen Maloney from the um, New Zealand Dementia Cooperative. I wondered if you could talk about urban design and dementia. With the ageing population, there's going to be uh, significantly more people with dementia in a very short space of time. I'm a bit horrified to hear that Auckland doesn't have um, plans to develop age-friendly uh, city. But um, I'm sure you've done a lot of thinking about dementia and urban design. Can you talk some more about that? Is that directed at me? And no, at the panel. Or you, Ludo. Well, I'll let the panel have a go, and then if there's uh, something I can add, then I'll happily do so. Who'd, who'd like to cover that one? Um, perhaps, perhaps Martin, is that Martine? Did you? Oh, Martine's going to have a crack. Um, at a few levels, we have started to pick up on that. For instance, twice a month, council is liaising with Auckland Transport. We've got two groups. One is Public Transport Accessibility group and the other one is capital projects accessibility group and all that really means is that instead of just talking access and inclusion we have people on that uh, group that advise us as council staff and as Auckland transport staff around signage inclusive signage for older people for even with on, early onset dementia so you know we, they, they, they talk to us about some colors that is more conducive, some spaces that could be seeming more confining. We've got the Phobic Trust that liaise with us about are we so security conscious nowadays? People may be scared to go into um, confined, what they perceive as confined spaces, and also signage that if, if one is forgetful, how could signage be uh, suitable uh, without being there so much that people actually forget about it? So. Um, that is a specific example. I know it's not the whole gamut, and I know that uh, just before the elections, all the panels were disbanded because the new mayor will put the panels together. And, of course, we had a seniors panel um, as well as a disability panel. And the seniors panel is extraordinary, was extraordinarily active in liaising with other panels and driving this specific matter forward as well. And I'm sure, I know that the new mayor has said that he will reinstate the panels in some way, shape or form. It may need a bit of changing like anything else does. So that is just two examples at a practical level that I know and I've heard people raise the matters around dementia, about the ageing population, and really trying to put a non-threatening spin on it, but a positive inclusion design spin on it. Of course. If of course. I could just share with you something that's been a, a joy to me over the last decade or so. Uh, there's an organization in the United States called ATRZ Arts, and it's actually Arts for Alzheimer's. And uh, it started at museums. It started out actually at the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York originally. And it actually is born of the idea that um, even people with dementia can generate great new memories from experience. And to be able to bring people into a, into a museum, into a gallery, in an organized way, and give them the chance to really interact with the art, it's been a remarkably successful program. Uh, they also have another part of what they're doing that actually brings people with dementia to movie theaters on an afternoon when the movie theater is often not used. And they actually are showing old movies. And again, it's that 
that idea that experience is still available, even when memory is gone. Uh, so culture, and God, New Zealand has culture, and Auckland is a rich cultural environment. To be able to have a dementia program in the cultural sector seems very doable here. So, yeah, Jane, of course. Um, I'd just like to add that um, it isn't uh, dementia isn't just the province of an, uh, an older person. Uh, and you can get dementias for all sorts of reasons. And uh, uh, acquired brain injury um, can cause uh, memory problems as well. And I just want to reiterate something Martine said, and that in the public environment, first of all, yes, Auckland does need to look at the World Health Organization's uh, uh, age-friendly cities program, I think, but that's part of the way there to the built environment. But I think the um, one of the other uh, areas is that, uh, and this is the most tricky one, and this is actually something that um, Judy Human said to me, and that is changing attitudes is really the hard thing to do. So what we have to do is the bit that's easier, and that's change the environment. Well, I think we're on that path. So our next step is about attitudes, and I think the people who are exper uh, experiencing dementia um, even though they may be, may be able to get around in the environment with, with perhaps hopefully good wayfinding and good signals and they don't get lost, is the attitude of other people like in shops and uh, in services and so on, which is really the defining uh, experience, the experience that they have. That, that's what stops them from losing... Uh, continuing with their confidence uh, and being able to still get out and about. So um, I think added to the built environment things and all the good programs where we're finding that people with dementia can actually do a lot more than people thought they could uh, is that uh, that should then start to lead people on to thinking, well, you know, maybe they didn't remember that right now, but maybe they'll remember it a bit later, you know. Great. Well, look, I think we've had a, a it's a difficult was with a, such a large audience and um, and uh, the end of the evening. But I, I guess just would you, would you mind each of you just leave us with one thing that you would like Auckland Council to do um, going forward? What is the one thing we need to start getting right? You know, I was reflecting on Martine's comment around it takes a village to bring up a child and it just that goes to the very epicenter of, of how to design good communities and, and walkable neighbourhoods, which we seem to have forgotten, which is, it's not rocket science, but somehow something's happened. Um, and I was thinking about, I've travelled a lot around New Zealand, and we seem to be putting a lot of old people um, in the middle of nowhere in these places called Happy Valley. I mean, I couldn't think of, I, I really couldn't think of anything more unhappy being put in the middle of nowhere where every single activity they have to do is getting in a car to drive back to where, you know, you should put them downtown in, 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 in sort of old age homes. But they need young people around, not old people. So, a view, I'm nervous about the future and nervous about where they're going to plan to put me. So, um, <laughs> just one, maybe one takeaway that we need to get right. Perhaps, um, Martine, do you want to go first? This is, uh, you, as a member of the Auckland Council team, uh, maybe being a bit, <laughs> bit unfair, but, but just what do I and my team need to be concerned about? bureaucracy I can think on my feet <laughs> um, when I walked the first time with a dog when I was at university I was so scared because it's hard enough trusting another person to guide you because even though people mean well anything can happen and when I walked for the first time with a guide dog 
I just realized that um, it, is, it, is, it is, for me, profound. That dog had to interpret the environment. Can an environment be made so accessible that my dog can keep on interpreting it safely? We need trust and, um, and we need collaboration. So with my worldwide WB World Blind Union hat on, we need to liaise internationally so that we don't reinvent the wheel. We need to liaise nationally because in the end we've got a central government and we want to be on the same page. And then, of course, everything good starts at home. And we need to start, whether it's with our dogs uh, as, a, as, a, as a working guide, whether it's with our council, we need to build up trust and we need to collaborate. And then we can work on, on the solutions in the environment. Well, there you go. <laughs> so who's going to chump that one? <laughs> um, Jane. Um, I think there's a bit of an elephant in the room uh, in terms of what we haven't talked about, and that is housing. Um, we had a, a little piece this morning from Jeff Penrose from LifeMark, and um, your home is where, as he said, you wake up every morning. It's the centre of your life. It's where you create your memories. It's where your family uh, comes to or belongs. Uh, it's uh, where you go to sleep at night. It is the very beginning and end of every day that you live. Um, we can talk about the accessibility and the universal design of the built environment externally, uh, but we have to join the dots. If you cannot get out of your home to enjoy that environment, what's the point? And the, uh, the other factor is that if you have members of your family, for example, if Granny is now in a, in a wheelchair, you've got six steps up to your home and you've always had the family Christmas party there, um, what, what's going to happen? Does that mean you'll suddenly go to the local park because that's the only place that's accessible? It's the only nobody's got a home that's accessible for Granny to come to anymore. Uh, and as the other thing that often gets forgotten is that um, housing is the biggest piece of infrastructure that any country has. And the fact that some of it might be private at some time when you are living in it, when it's on the market, it becomes public again. And we forget that, in fact, we all have ownership in each other's homes in that regard. So I would like to see that uh, Auckland Council um, push the idea of having at least some very basic visitability features so that people can at least visit your home so that you can continue your social activities, even if it isn't perhaps as good as a place where you can age in place, because that would be the ultimate. Um, the uh, research that's been done in Australia is that if you think about those articles and features right now, it doesn't cost any more to put them in. And what I usually say to people is we have universal design in our homes now already. Because we all have wall, walls, doors, roofs, floors, bathrooms. All we have to do is just tweak those universals just a little bit, make them a little bit wider, a little bit more level, and then we'll be, we'll be there and we will have joined the dots between the public environment and our homes. Pretty good.
Pressure's on Boston. <laughs> I, I truly am optimistic, and I think, um, having had a little exposure to you for the last day, um, I'm very optimistic um, that design is going to have a very good run here for the foreseeable future. Um, but I would urge a sense of urgency. A lot of this takes a long time. Um, and we don't have any more time. We've got to figure it out now. Uh, and I think that sense of urgency will be reinforced by a commitment to participation and diverse participation. And we, we've heard something about a commitment around participation. Um, we've, we've heard about your colleague, the Maori architect, who is saying we've got to do more talking with our ears. Um, and I think genuine participation in urban development is rare. There's a lot of lip service, uh, but I think you need to avoid the, you're going to present three schemes at the night meeting, and only a handful of people are going to come out, the usual suspects, and you're going to know which one you want them to choose and manipulate that meeting. And that's kind of how urban design and participation happens around the world. If Auckland is going to lead in this way and really do something that is fundamentally different, you've got to avoid the three schemes, and you've got to do more talking with your ears. But I think you can do it. So there we go, some, some really golden nuggets there from these three wonderful women. So look, thank you. Could I ask you all to uh, put your hands together and uh, welcome and warmly thank Valerie Fletcher, Martine Abel and Jane Brinkhoff. Well, that was great. Look, I've just got one last thing to do, and uh, I've got all my bits of paper. But um, what we'd like to do is uh, our sponsors for the night have, um, have been the Auckland Designers um, ADNZ. Um, Astrid Anderson is their CEO. You heard from her a little bit earlier. Astrid, would you mind, well, not would you mind, would you please come to the stage and, and give a vote of thanks? And uh, that'd, be, that'd be wonderful. And uh, good night from me, and uh, it's uh, over to Astrid. Thank you, everybody. what a tough act to follow. I'm not sure where I can start. And um, I've got lots, I think I've got more scribblings than you had, Ludo, and I'm starting to think that, I'm starting to think that ADNZ might be stand for Alzheimer's Dementia New Zealand instead of Architectural Designers New Zealand. Um, ADNZ is um, an organisation that represents primarily architectural designers but also registered architects here in um, New Zealand, nationwide organisation with a strong um, presence here in Auckland. And it's been really interesting to hear the speakers today and um, this evening and to see how they resonate with very much where um, ADNZ is heading. And, ADNZ has a strategic plan, which is our people, our place, our architecture. And for the next four years, the board and the organisation is focusing primarily on our people and with a very strong focus on diversity. So it's interesting how things converge um, very much. And that was just signed off in August. So it's interesting that we've got to that place. I've learned a lot this evening. And... Um, I love that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, if that's not a 
more about standing up and showing up and having courageous conversations and stepping up to the plate. Um, I don't know anymore. So thank you both. You can share the glory on that, Jane. Um, I think that was amazing for me. I think, too, I really wanted to say from Martine, I love the whole concept of when you talk about equity and it's about equity of outcomes. It's not actually about the starting gate. It's about how we all have the same outcome. And I think that's a lovely thing to remind ourselves and um, how we make design connectful. So I think that's really important as well. Um, earlier today I spoke a little bit about um, some of the personal experience in my life of um, my late husband having motor neuron disease and I cried. I said I wasn't going to cry this evening so I won't go into too much detail. Um, I hadn't intended to but you know sometimes these things happen but a lot of things have happened I think over the years that make you realize how challenging life is for different people and as I watched my elderly mother who had been extraordinary she'd been in the underground at the age of 15 um, exporting Jews out of Denmark a young young girl you know at 15 I was still complaining because I wasn't getting enough pocket money and she was doing extraordinary things and to see her lose her sight and her hearing in her old age and for me to reflect on maybe I shouldn't have put my head in the speakers at the rock concert. I realised that, you know, hearing for all of us will be a challenge. And um, we need to be thinking about that now, that I found so many few places I could take her in a cafe, um, so many few public places I could take her, and the excitement of finding a park that we could have a picnic um, was really special. And so you realise just to be able to have a conversation with someone with limited hearing um, was challenging and the technology around hearing aids just hasn't made the grade. Um, the challenges of being able to take people into all sorts of places and um, my husband with motion neuron disease, I went on the journey of losing accessibility with him, which was quite interesting. So discovering someone who can't talk Firstly, and everyone assuming if they can't talk, they can't hear. So, you know, I remember meeting him in a cafe and he had ordered a coffee written the note. And someone gave him the coffee saying, with a note saying, I hope you like it, which is really <laughs> lovely. <laughs> but, you know, those sorts of moments which were joyous. And, you know, we still have that note because it was quite special. But, um, you know, those moments that you realise that everyone's trying their best, but not quite. And so unless you can manage it with sort of a sense of humour and a bit of style, it's kind of difficult. I um, I really liked the conversation of let's be real about average and let's get rid of vanilla, as I call it. I mean, life isn't vanilla. And, um, you know, there's no excitement in vanilla. There's nothing inspiring in average. It's all too dull. And we've recently had... Uh, um, a very um, dear member of our organisation who's been very involved, he's still very involved in the organisation, um, and he's just had um, a wee gorgeous wee girl, he's got two already, and he's had a wee gorgeous wee girl with um, Treacher-Collins syndrome, which I didn't know about, and I Googled it, and that was a horrific experience, and um, it's really tough. It's really tough, and I managed to catch up with him in Waikato, and catch him for breakfast as he was dashed into the hospital as they go through this triage of specialists. 
And um, he said he'd been into the office and we talked about some work he was doing. And he said, oh, this amazing building, I think it's the most beautiful home I've created for these amazing clients. And I realise for it to be really good, I need to design in an imperfection because it's in the imperfection that the beauty lies. And I thought that was really beautiful. Still touches me. So, you know, to see that and to realize that is really important. And it's in the imperfection the beauties lie. And I think we need to look at how we design things um, for working and for playing. It's an interesting thing. I also saw some research not so long ago, and I keep trying to find it again because some friends have asked for it. Um, and it was about, um, again, about the vanilla, and we need to create the challenges. And longevity, you know, a flight of stairs, one flight of stairs increases your longevity dramatically. So, you know, this whole thing of sometimes creating, oh, goodness me, we're all turning old. And we're all, as we get older, I think we all value maturity a little bit more. But um, creating environments that are always flat, we actually need to be challenged to do a few more flights of stairs every day. And there was some research on people living one flight up and how much their longevity you know, what the impact that had on the longevity, just doing one flight of stairs every day to two flights. But one flight was the kicker. Just one flight made the biggest impact. So, yes, we need those flat spaces, but for us we need to be pushed a little bit and grow, and we still need that flight of stairs every now and then um, to do that. So, look, I want to say thank you. Um, I've got so many... Um, things that I want to say and I really think let's get rid of um, the normal, let's be outliers wherever we can and I want to say I'm always impressed every time I come to Auckland and every time I catch up with the Auckland design team um, Christchurch based and we have another set of challenges I'll welcome you all down there in 10 years when we're starting to get finished um, but you know I think it's exciting. I really encourage you to take risks. I really encourage you, um, those of you who live here in Auckland, to celebrate those risks. Um, we need to have a go at everything. It may not work. Um, someone once said to me, "If when children learn to walk, you know, they stumble along and they fall, and every time they fall and stuff it up, we cheer. Well done. You know, but for some reason we get a bit older you know, if otherwise, these days, if we treated young toddlers the way we treat adults, oh, you know, oh, goodness me, they've given that walking three tries, they're never going to make it. Let's <laughs> stick them in a wheelchair, you know. But if we treat our projects and the opportunities around us, so have a go, it failed, have another go, it failed, have a third or fourth or fifth go, don't stop having a go because... That's what it's about. So thank you. ADNZ is thrilled to be part of Auckland Conversations. We're thrilled to work for the Auckland City Council. Um, we've got our conference. We're celebrating turning 50. I know we don't look it. And we're really um, just excited to be here. So thank you. I wasn't going to go up again, but thank you very much, everybody, for coming, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors, Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.